Hello. Welcome to the future. Nope. Nope. (laughs) This is the past. This is the past. Hello, and welcome to I'm a Sophisticate and So Can You. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony. And I'm another of your hosts, Sydney. So today, we're talking about the band LaBelle and the movie Mulholland Drive. Ooh. Yeah. So I will admit, I don't know very much about either of these things. I know absolutely nothing about LaBelle. Okay, I have wanted to do LaBelle because of the book... Glitter Up the Dark. Yes, that's the one. I always want to start with Sparkle, and then nothing sounds right. I'm like, Sparkle Up the pony show like flicker up the night it i don't know i I can't hold it in my head but it's a book about how pop music has contributed to the disintegration of the gender binary and it's like a little dense but like pretty interesting and there's a lot in that book about the band LaBelle and I was not I just like didn't know that about like Patti LaBelle I didn't know how Patti LaBelle figures into queer history and it sounds like that her band mates in that band figure more literally into queer history but like the band as a whole was really into making like multi multi-gendered alien themed safe spaces in the early 70s that just sound like the fucking bomb. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And the only things I really know about Patti LaBelle is what I have seen from Drag Race because she's been a judge on there at least once and people make reference to her a lot. Yes. And she's always very, like she always has real stuff to say. Yeah. She's not like a seat filler judge. No, she's a memorable judge. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were a girl group and I thought Patti LaBelle was like a (laughs) <laughs> like a like a girl group singer like a I didn't know that they were doing so much to engineer their own world <laughs> mm-hmm. and vibe and everything like I was I was picturing like the coordinated outfits yeah. and sort of like a Motown vibe mm-hmm. but I think it's it's actually a lot more than that I know that they they sing the original Lady Marmalade yeah it is it is sorely I've listened to it it is sorely missing a rap break <laughs> but it is they didn't have to change it a lot to make it like a really fun track in whatever like 2001 mm-hmm. which I think says something yeah about how how much fun LaBelle was yeah I'm expecting to have a little bit of the Donna Summer effect of like oh I didn't know that they did that song yeah I think it's gonna be a lot like funkier and like more exciting than what I would have pictured if I had not read Sparkle Through the Dawn. (laughs) Glitter Up the Dark by Sasha Geffen, available wherever you find your books. Yes. Not a sponsor. (laughs) Though, hey, Sasha Geffen, if you're looking for someone to plug your book, we will absolutely do it. Oh, yeah, we'll do it every episode. Yeah, we'll officially plug your book. Yeah. Hit us up on Twitter at Sophisticate Pod. Yeah, Our yeah DMs you are don't open. even have to pay us. Yeah, no, we'll just like, do it. Like if you just are, like give us attention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> even like a small amount. Like we will happily accept exposure as payment. Yeah, that yeah, is yeah, fine. yeah. Or just like payment in trade almost. Really any small amount of validation on Twitter. Yeah, 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 just yeah. Just tell us that we're good. Yeah. Notice me, just, senpai. Yeah. <laughs> this devolved pretty quickly. Okay. So I I feel like I've been like educated in an abstract way as to what to expect from LaBelle, but I I have not gone and done the homework of actually, I've listened to the original Lady Marmalade just because I like- Lady Marmalade. Yeah. (laughs) But like, I haven't gone into it. So I don't really know what it's going to sound like, but I have like this brain idea of what it's going to sound like. You have like an educated notion. Yeah, but it's very like cerebral. It's a lot of words. Mm -hmm. and not a lot of sounds or feelings. Sure, 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 sure. I think that probably about sums up how I feel about it because like I said, you know more than me. 
So Mulholland Drive? Okay, yes. Yeah, so Mulholland Drive. I thought it would be fun when we were looking at the envelope of chaos. I was like, I thought it would be fun to do these two like kind of queer things. Mm-hmm. It's like we sometimes do. Yeah. <laughs> I said so that like, oh my God, like wouldn't it be fun if we did two queer things like every other episode that we do? I mean, or honestly, even... we're creating a brand that I think this is pretty on point for. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I feel like sometimes it's like we do something that's like not even that queer like Taylor Swift and we're still like, let's talk about how gay this is. Yes. <laughs> or like Jennifer's body, like there was one scene. Yeah. There's a lot of innuendo. That's true. That's There's true. a lot of of like if you're looking for sapphic energy it it is more than just that scene that's true okay so that was what the idea behind the pairing was i did see mulholland drive what i believe is two times in the year it came out and so whatever i was like maybe an eighth grader or yeah, like something. 2001 yeah okay and it it's pretty gay but it's gay in a straight way yeah, you described it earlier as like a straight man's idea of what it means to be a lesbian. Well, it's just very much still the male gaze. I mean, I think. I didn't even know that word in the eighth grade. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I remember being like, oh, good. I like that this is here. But now I'm just trying to imagine it. And then I haven't watched it since, but I'm trying to imagine it. And, like, since you brought up Jennifer's body, I feel like the energy and the, like, emotional story between the female leads of Jennifer's body. Like, I feel like there's more gay energy in that movie, even though Mulholland Drive, I believe, gets more explicit than that. But it's it's stuck in my head as having gay stuff going on. But I just think now we're going to watch it and be like, this is like lesbian porn, but a movie instead of porn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like lesbian porn. I right. just did bunny ears. Right, right, right. And it's David Lynch, right? Yeah. This is our first David Lynch that we're covering. And I don't think, just judging by what's on the envelope, it's not going to be the last. I've only seen one other David Lynch movie before. Oh, I have not seen another David Lynch movie before. And it's The Elephant Man, which I've heard is like kind of unlike his other movies. So I don't really know what to expect. Although I've watched a fair amount of Twin Peaks and I did enjoy it. Oh, I did watch a fair amount of Twin Peaks. I forgot about that. I haven't seen any any of his other movies, but I have seen Twin Peaks. In some ways, I have seen all of it, but I did sleep during a lot of it. I found it very sleepy. Yeah, but I've heard the, like, vibe is more what a David Lynch project is. Yeah, that is also part of what interested me about covering this film, even though I did see it two times in the eighth grade, because I feel like it's a good, from my memory of it, It's just a good, like, reference point, like, benchmark Mm -hmm. of non-linear weirdness. Just doing doing whatever you want. Just, like, basing things on images and feelings and eeriness rather than plot or even story. Which, given the uh, films we've covered in the past might be a little bit of a challenge for us. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Let's see what happens. I I have found myself wanting to reference it, but feeling like I should watch it again in order to do that in a coherent manner. But like in our criticism of the TV shows that we're watching in our household Mm -hmm. lately, streaming television is having a moment, it feels like, where it's exploring its its boundaries. Mm-hmm. We're trying some things. And I'm excited by it because I've always liked TV more than movies. And I think that TV sh- has been better than movies for a little while now. And I think that it has every right as a medium to 
explore all the things that film gets to explore. So I'm feeling like there are more things that are trying sort of like, we don't need to explain everything. Mm -hmm. We don't need to wrap everything up. And some of it feels like the ways that J.J. Abrams fails. Like, oh, we're not explaining it because we just like didn't think it because we just have nothing and we're just like fucking with you and and fuck you. Yeah, the mystery box thing. Yeah, the fucking mystery box thing. (laughs) Like, fuck that guy, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) Like, honestly, fuck that guy. So... How do we distinguish between when that's just not our goal, when we're doing a style of storytelling that is not interested in cleanliness or like wrap up? How do we distinguish that from just like dicking around and not knowing any of the answers? And I think having Mulholland Drive as like a common, as like something that we can discuss in order to make those comparisons. I think it's going to be useful vocab. Yeah, an important reference point. I'm wondering if I'm going to come away liking it. You know, I guess it's going to be where does it fall on that line that you're just describing. Yes. Like, that's really what it's going to boil down to. Like, the reason that I felt like Jennifer's body failed was not because it wasn't interesting, but just because it was too messy. Yeah. And just wasn't fully, I think, thought out. Yes, but Jennifer's body was making a lot of gestures towards, like... Mulholland Drive is not going to try. It's not like, oh, oops, we didn't exactly connect all these dots. It's like, we didn't need, we didn't make a picture. We weren't trying. Mm-hmm. We just thought of some stuff and shot it. <laughs> yes. On the other hand, to the best of my memory, while it is not trying for like overall coherence, it is trying. It is trying. Right. It is not pretending that they don't want to be there. Right. Which is Yes. My best guess is for both of us, I think we're going to not love it, but not be bored. I think it's going to be an entertaining and eyebrow raising evening. And we'll be like, okay, that happened. That's what I think we're both going to say. Okay. I'm excited to not be bored. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well then we will skip forward into the future. Sometimes that's all you can ask of these movies. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. In our timeline, the last couple of things that we have watched, I have not been bored. Yeah, that is fair to say. So, we'll skip forward into the future. Yes, we will see you in the future. Yep. Hello, welcome to the future. Hello, we're here in the future. It's been a bit. Yeah, it's been a little while. It's happened before on the podcast. You've gone out of town. One of us has gone out of town and it's just sort of messed up the recording. Yeah, schedule. yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I, for this, I, I bought a, a book. I had some literature that I was going to read with the full intention of becoming like completely obsessed with Nona Hendricks and then writing a pilot about her and don't I know that I should not be the lead creative on a pilot about but like I'm just ideating you guys okay leave me alone but I I did not have time to do that (laughs) because you were busy writing your screenplay about Amy Lee yes as we discussed in the end of our last episode I think we need to add a segment to this podcast that is just like an Evanescence check-in yeah, that's fine. I mean, we said we would do that with Slater Kinney, but I think it might actually be an Evanescence. Yeah. Well, so I think it could be fun to do a segment where we check in about like, what are the things that we feel like we're still deepening our relationship over? And yeah. I, I am honestly shocked at how little I've listened to Slater Kinney. That's funny because I have actually continued to return to it. I really loved it, but I just, I don't ever put it on. I started going to the queer body positive gym near our house and... 
Call the Doctor is a great album to work out to. Sure. And it's almost exactly the length of the workout that I want. It's like 35 minutes. Yeah. So like when the album is over, I know I can leave. You can be like, okay, that's enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carrie Brownstein said I'm done. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's a couple of tracks of Regina Spector. I'm not doing the whole albums, Mm -hmm. but there's a couple of tracks that I'm like, let me just remember this weird thing that she says. So that's around. And Taylor Swift, obviously. I have I have Taylor not escaped Swift, yeah. Taylor Swift. She's still in my heavy rotation. You know what? I actually, not whole albums, but individual tracks, I will put on Tom Waits sometimes. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, just like one or two songs. Yeah. And it's usually like, I'm in the mood for this specific Tom Waits song. I will put it on and then I'll be like, and I am done. Yeah, I put that one, what's the one... Going Out West. Oh, interesting. I put Going Out West on a playlist, and then I put on that playlist, and then I took Going Out West off the playlist. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I wanted it there. I thought it would be like a little bit of an outlier. Right, right. But like, I thought it would settle it, but like a nice surprise when it came up. And then it came on, and I was like, no, I do not want this. So I don't know. I think Tom Waits and I are moving on as we were before this, which is... Mutual respect, but I'm not listening to it. That's fair. <laughs> yes, I think Tom Waits respects me. I think if you told him that you'd listen to all of his albums. On a train ride. I feel like he'd be like, <laughs> respect. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wait, yeah, okay. The, so, the reason so for the season. Are. Why are we here? Well, I don't know. Why are we here first? Uh, LaBelle, I think. Okay, great. Let's talk about LaBelle. Okay. On Imaginary Four. four. One, two, Three. Deliciously really funky. Really liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that they're incredibly talented. And yeah. I think I said this to you a couple days ago. If this is what funk is, I've really been missing out. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there was a, maybe we weren't supposed to like it when we were kids. There was a little bit of like a mm, funk. It was almost like disco. Yeah. Less embarrassing, but more lame. Yeah, it was like disco for nerds yeah 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 i feel like it it became associated with just like lame dudes yeah and it was like why if this is what it is why on earth yeah that i remember also being like well you can't it's weird if you're white and you like funk but i also feel like maybe it's just because it's like well if you're black and you like funk then that's fine Mm -hmm. but it was like the person who was like i like funk was always a weird creepy white dude yeah it, it feels like the subtext was like i like funk for the wrong reasons yeah i mean also just like trend cycles like mm-hmm. when we were kids was probably funk's like natural nadir yeah i mean a lot of stuff from the 70s was just aggressively out of fashion in the 90s yeah but labelle is yeah. wonderful yeah such a delight i found my enrichment material really helpful as far as placing them in like I don't know if you know this, but they were really important. (laughs) It's almost like we picked them for a reason. Yeah, no, but like besides Lady Marmalade, they didn't and don't have a lot of hits that you like, even if you move through their discography or not, it's not like Donna Summer where it's like, oh shit, this and this and this. Like there wasn't a lot that was familiar to me besides Lady Marmalade. Same. I don't know. I guess I just thought that they were like another girl group, but like edgier. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about how like edgier means a lot 
<laughs> right. There's it, a lot like, of things in that context, be. like a girl group, but edgier is already like, that's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that, that my extra reading brought up that I thought was really interesting was like, there were black men at the time who were having hits with like protest songs and like political like black men were allowed to be political in music and white women were allowed to be sexually liberated in music but they just got caught in this place of like well no it's a bridge too far right to be like black and female and political and sexually liberated and gender bending and like Mostly queer. I think Patti LaBelle is straight. But like very queer friendly. Yes. And like not in this way that's like there were starting to be white female singers that that would like, attract, like, like Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, how fun for her that the gays love her now. But for some reason, black artists, black female artists attracting the same kind of attention from the queer community was like, oh, no, I don't I don't think we should let these guys get together. That's very weird. And I think it comes out in their music because I think a lot of their sexually liberated stuff sounds like it wasn't written by Patti LaBelle. Yeah, a lot of it was written by Nona Hendrix, who I was planning on being obsessed with. Yeah. Yeah, they had like, the CIA was paying attention to them. What? (laughs) They were featured frequently on a public access TV show. That was like one of those band variety, like like in Hairspray. Yeah. But instead of being white or integrated, it was all black. Mm-hmm. And the government was like, you gotta integrate. And they were like, no. Interesting. And it became like, I really want to say the CIA, like the, the Whispers missions were like, mm-hmm. we got to shut down. We got to shut down this TV show that airs in 40 cities throughout the, like, it's, it's it's letting it's giving black people ideas. Yeah. So it wasn't actually it wasn't their TV show. They were just on it. On it. They were like like Alec Baldwin is to SNL as LaBelle was to the sure. Show. I wanted to talk about since we're talking about like their the social justice bent of their music. Yeah. Something I really liked about them is I feel like they had a similar approach to songwriting because they had a, a similarly dancey style to Donna Summer or even Lionel Richie, where it was like we're going to take one or two phrases and we're going to repeat them. Mm-hmm. But the two things that I liked that really set LaBelle apart were, one, as they did that, the music would build to like this wild crescendo almost every time. And so even if a song started slow, it usually didn't end slow. Yeah. And the second thing that I liked even more was the phrase that they chose would be this just like very concise, insightful phrase like the one song that's just the revolution will not be televised, the revolution will be live. And then it's like, here's another reason. And this is why the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will be live. Yeah, it's very jammy. It's very jammy. I listen to it a lot on walks and I had to physically stop myself from just like (laughs) dancing a lot on Jamming, man. Just jamming. Yeah, I think Nightbirds is a perfect album. Oh, it's a great album. And anyone would like it. It does sort of, I th- okay, so they have six albums, yeah? Yeah. Nightbirds is in like the middle. After that, there's a, a tonal shift, I think, in the, in the, in their approach. It gets a little more, it's not less catchy, but like a little more, um, introspective. Yeah. And like, like each track is a little longer and mm-hmm. it, it gets like a little more almost theatrical. Yeah. I would say there will be more going on in each song. It won't be like, here's a song that's this, like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And here's a song that's this, that it, they're really like 
love to love you baby style like mm-hmm. compositions yes i think nightbirds is the most successful sort of like marriage of sing-songiness mm-hmm. and them starting to really push the envelope yeah but the the two if i were in a recommending mood i would say start there and, and move towards the present day do the ones that phoenix and chameleon i want to say yeah are the ones that come after that yeah i really love uh, that run of three albums which yeah, is fantastic. yeah 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 and the ones that come before are like really solid yeah and have some great moments also in them. good but i i didn't find myself as invested in them yeah there's more covers in those which you mentioned a few days ago like those covers are really good i think yeah. they do a really good job reimagining yeah the first time that we had a little like offline about this i was going chronologically and so i was kind of more in those early ones and I, I did like their covers and I learned in my book before they were LaBelle when they were Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells they opened for the Rolling Stones and the Who oh there's just a lot of like them having really the, the respect of the industry mm-hmm. of, of their peers of all races and genders and like levels of success people really thought they had it and it just seems like album after album and incarnation after incarnation the powers that be just managed to sort of bungle the the hit making Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's i mean it's it's easy to get suspicious Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like well did they bungle it or did they sabotage it Right. The music industry likes to insist that it is motivated only by like what an audience wants and what's going to sell. But I think we've all seen that that's not true, that they have things that they would rather protect than the bottom line. They did have a female manager for a while that seemed like really excited about them and like contributed a lot to their funky new image when they tran- when they transitioned out of being the Bluebells to LaBelle and stopped being like matching dresses and wigs girl group and more like spacesuits. Yes. <laughs> spacesuits, feathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shards yeah. of glass glued to your face. Yeah. Yeah, all that shit. It sounds like they did have some collaborators that were like really excited to do that with them. And yet there just was always a step that was missing. And that's what I was trying to say about like black men were allowed to be political and white women were allowed to cater to queers, but they just kept getting caught in the middle of like people's nerves of what they were presenting. It's interesting we're talking about this because at the same time, Donna Summer was putting out all of her albums and I feel like she's very sexually liberated. Like, Love to Love You Baby is like 1973? Maybe even earlier? Yeah, that's true. She is very sexually liberated. But but she's not also politically charged. And she's not also, she's catering to the queers in the way that like, oh, gay men love me, but she's not like sounding like a queer. That's true. And the other thing I was going to say was she is recording a lot of those early albums in Germany. So she doesn't have to deal with the like oppressive racism of American culture. Yeah, I think LaBelle did a little bit of their like initial reset in London. Which makes sense. And then came back. Yeah, which is also what Hendrix did. So yeah, that all tracks. But I think you are also right that they are a confluence of things that Donna Summer is not. And that's not a bad thing. That's just a... I mean, I think it's part of what made them such a a special listen. Yeah. And it makes me want to listen to Patti LaBelle because she has such a powerful voice. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It seems like, weirdly, she was kind of the most, like, reluctant and conservative, such a mean word, but, like, Nona Hendrix and 
Sarah Dash were both really like, let's be space aliens. Let's leave it all behind. Like, who are we catering to? You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like, yeah. like, let's be free. And Patty LaBelle was like, okay, but I have this voice that wants to sing ballads. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also she got married and had a baby right before they made the switch from Bluebells to LaBelle. Oh, interesting. They were having this like queer liberated rock star experience. Uh And she was like, I miss my kid. Mm, You know, it sounds like she, she often was the one that was like, we're doing what now? But you know, props because she executed it anyway. (laughs) She did. Yeah. I mean, Lady Marmalade is like 80% her. Yeah. Which by the way, I think most people who are listening to this now have probably only heard the Moulin Rouge version of Lady Marmalade, which is a great version of yeah. Lady Marmalade. Yeah, no, do yourself a favor and go listen to the original The original, original is pretty impressive. Yeah. No shade to the new one. They're just different. They're, They're just, just different. different. You know what's the other track from Nightbirds that I really liked after Lady Marmalade was Are You Lonely? Because yeah. their phrase in that was, are you lonely living in a city without a heart? And that was 50 years ago. And that still feels like I could say that to most people walking down the street in Los Angeles. Yeah, you can really you can really drive around LA listening to that song mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. It, it feels quite relevant. Yeah. And that is, I think, one that is like, why wasn't that a political anthem of the, like, why why was, why was didn't that do well on the radio? There's yeah. no reason. It's, yeah. It's funky as fuck. It's so catchy. And it's not like it's out of, it, like, it's not like it's too political for that year on the radio. Yeah. I would say if you're, if you're unfamiliar with LaBelle and you are listening to any of their songs, unlike Donna Summer, where sometimes she'll start a song and it'll be very slow. And that's just uh, the beginning of maybe four slow songs in a row yeah (laughs) if you put on a labelle song and you're like oh this is starting kind of slow just give it just give it a minute just give it a minute it's not gonna be it'll surprise you it's gonna funk up your heart yeah for sure yeah i really like the titular track night birds but honestly it's it's no skips yeah no skips on night birds I tried listening to Phoenix today and I accidentally put Spotify on shuffle for too long and then I accidentally restarted it and I just like, I like, listened to oh, half the uh, first half of the album twice and I was like, okay, I can't, I can't do this right now. Yeah. But what I got through was good. The Again, the titular track, which in this case I believe is the opening track. It is. I think is really great. I would have to look back at the track list again to tell you which other ones from that album, but... It's like pretty good. The speed at which we do these things, it's like, but I haven't exhausted Nightbirds yet. Like I don't need to dive deep into Phoenix because I haven't exhausted Nightbirds. But like if I did, I would feel comfortable knowing that Phoenix and Chameleon were both there to like be more for me to explore. Yeah. Critically, I know that run of three albums is all really well respected, but Nightbirds has wound up on like a bunch of top albums of all time lists. Yeah. There was one track that I wanted to bring up and it is the last track off of Chameleon. It's, I think, the last track in their original run of albums. The song is called Going Down Makes Me Shiver. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, but also, wait, you're bringing up for me that the the closing number of Nightbirds is also really spicy. Okay, it's called You Turn Me On. Oh, yeah. But it's, what is the hook? The hook is something, like, very explicit. It's like, I come like the pouring rain each time you call my name. Yes. Like, it's spicy, you guys. Yeah. And it's like, it's not coded. Like, no. they sing it like it's, oh, I need a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they 
you can hear the sex stuff in their voices. Yeah, but in a different way from Love to Love You Baby, where like Donna Summer is literally moaning. Yeah, They're just like- It is different. It's almost like, and no shade to Donna Summer, but it's almost like a like when women make porn. Well, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> instead, yeah. of, instead of men making porn starring women, it's like, I feel like I'm being shady to Donna Summer and saying that her that her sex noises are not authentic. And I think they are, but they're like- they're a little bit male gazy. Yeah. I mean, we had this conversation way back in our first episode, the conversation of who decided that that pinched squeaky noise is oh, yeah, we is the yeah. good sex noise. Yeah, 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 yeah. LaBelle is not giving you pinched squeaky noises. They're giving you just great singing that you know means they fuck. Yeah. And also the lyrics are quite explicit yeah. like if i if i may read a little of yes, going down do. makes me shiver please do it's so hard to explain what i'm feeling when i'm kneeling going down to your river going down makes me shiver and the chill of the water makes me feel so good y'all yeah not only is that very explicit but that is also very obviously about eating puss like oh, there yeah. is there is no world in which that is a song about sucking dick like yeah. no way yeah like that is a song written by <laughs> nona and sarah yeah and they're like, this is the last song that we're going to put out for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Which we're, go- we're going for it. What a flex. I yeah. love that. <laughs> what a flex. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about the Met Gala thing? What's the Met Gala thing? Or no, not the, I'm, I said gala because the real Met Gala was this week. Just the Metropolitan Opera thing. Still don't know the they, thing. Um, they did some sort of like concert or ball that was like, I guess anyone who was alive in New York in the 70s will tell you that it was like the event of the decade. Ah, fun. (laughs) And it was like very queer, very omniracial. Everyone was there, everyone. And the invitation (laughs) or ticket or whatever said, wear something silver. That was the dress code. Sure. Wear something silver. And people showed up in just like, a silver jock strap and body paint. Yep. Now, you know, that's still pretty exciting, but things like that happen. But like for that to be an event at the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, that's pretty shocking. Was like, it really popped some people's brains and was like, the the book I read was just chock full of quotes of people being like, it was the best night of my life. (laughs) Well, that's awesome that they Um, facilitated that. And I think it was one, uh, one of the things that Patti LaBelle said in her autobiography is one of the things she's the most proud of doing even though she was one of the least pushy members of the team as far as like expanding what was possible but it was like I guess they they were exploring these new sounds and a costume designer approached them and was like I would really like to dress you guys and they were like okay and what and he was like this nonsense and they were like okay and then once they had that it was like well we are in this like one of the best rigged spaces mm-hmm. that's ever existed. Like, what if we flew around a little? <laughs> so they were like entering from the ceiling, like coming up from the floor and reading the description of it. I was like, what if you could have time travel, but just to go to concerts? Yeah, it sounds like a Taylor Mac show. And I mean that as a compliment. Yes, it did. It did remind me a lot of my experience of Taylor Mac shows. So if you like what you're hearing, dear listener, and you don't know who Taylor Mac is, do a little Googling and see, yeah, when Judy's next show is in your vicinity. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's not going to matter what it is. It's going to be like that. Yeah. That's a special kind of show when it's like every single person dresses up. Every single person commits to the bit and the spirit of the thing for that 
whatever, two, three hours of like musical communion. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would lo- I would use one of my time travels on, on that for yeah, sure. Absolutely. That sounds like an incredible night. So who is LaBelle for? Honestly, I, I think Nightbirds is for anyone with ears. Mm-hmm. I think a, a little bit of a deeper dive and also just like knowing a little more about it, a little more context is for anyone with like a genuine interest in American music <laughs> and yep. its evolution. Like I just think it's the more I listened and the more I learned, I was like, we have uncovered a lot of things that I was like, oh, I like this. I, I like this. It's a shame I didn't find this sooner, like for me. Yeah. But we ha- there, there haven't been a lot of things that I think have been genuinely misunderestimated by history. Right, like forgotten masterpieces. Yes. We found a few things that I think have been overestimated. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or things that I'm like, oh, now that I'm here, these have been correctly estimated. Like Slater Kinney is a great band, and I think they're doing as well as they need. Like, I don't need every person to know Slater Kinney. Like, that's an, right. they, they've made some important contributions, but like, they're the right amount famous, I think. Right. I think it's crazy that like the Supremes remain a household name. Mm-hmm. Most people, I think, could still go like, "What? <laughs> what is it good for?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, there's still like political chants of yeah. that era that survive, and yet people don't even know that Lady Marmalade is a cover. Right? Or like they have heard of Patti LaBelle, but they didn't know that she had a group before her solo career. Right. Or that it was edgy or political or queer or did so much to create such a unique space and energy. Like I just had no idea. I just thought she was like another great R&B singer. Like yeah. one I thought she was like one of those ladies with a really good voice from and, the past. And she is, but she's more than that. Yeah, yeah. And they as a group were something really I just keep saying special, but that's what they were, man. A special little trio. This might be a bit of a weird analogy, but I think we are getting from LaBelle what I thought we were hoping to get from Jennifer's body. Sure. Of like <laughs> Of like, how dare the culture forget this? Yes, And like, Jennifer's body, it's like... It's okay. Yeah, it's fine. We can go on, we'll muddle through somehow. Right. Without her. I'm not going to spit in your face if you tell me you like it, but like, it's it's fine. (laughs) LaBelle is like, what the fuck happened that these aren't a household name? Yeah, yeah. I don't feel that a moment of my time was spent in vain educating myself about them. As far as going forwards, I think I'll probably listen to Nightbirds in the like on a road trip. I, I think it would it would take me feeling like I'd really worn out Nightbirds to go to the other albums, but that's just for me. Yeah, I'm not trying to shit on the other albums. I'm just being honest about my what I foresee for our our ongoing relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, do you think that this feels like if you're cornered at a party and someone tells you that they really love Labelle, not Patty Labelle, but Labelle? Yeah, how does that make you feel? great like i want to know them and like it's like i better not fuck this up now right green flag big green flag green flag and like like you have just you're on notice now if somebody says that to you you better be ready to be as cool as them yeah exactly and i think if you are wondering should you go and listen to this i guess is it in your curriculum for me yes absolutely absolutely uh is there any class you would put it in 
definitely violent femmes. I'm just looking at your whiteboard. Yeah. But you know that I, I like to just make them up. Oh, definitely School of Rock. School of Rock, like, violent femmes, like race is complex. That, <laughs> yes, race is complex. Like the fact that in the film School of Rock, when mm-hmm. he draws that big whiteboard, the fact that LaBelle is not like one of the words that we can read from mm-hmm. the brief shot that it's in is not the film's fault, but a testament to how their influence, I think, has been understated. Yeah. I feel like I know now that LaBelle is really important and they influenced a lot of things, but if it's like, like what? Like what things did they influence? I'm like, I'm not sure actually. Like right now they're kind of just like on this, not island, but like peninsula maybe. Yeah. Off of other rock and roll music that I like that is like a very exciting and it's a very exciting biome, but I don't know. I need more, I need more mapping. Yeah. It makes me want to in future episodes do like James Brown, George Clinton and like, other like funk people well no yeah as much as i'm like no i hate listening to music by men but i feel like that is what i'm asking for because i want i want to hear how these women got to some of this shit first yeah oh there's such a good example i know i'm just talking about this book a lot but we'll link to it in the show notes sure yeah in the book there's like a music video for one of nona hendrix's projects after after they all they all break up and go solo she created a like what should have been a hit song and there's a music video in the and the book like describes the music video and it's like but of course it didn't make it on mtv because it featured all these kinds of imagery and i was like um that sounds exactly like justify my love and then it's like three years later justify my love (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh okay so yeah so racism (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and like not like that's not a dig at Madonna. It's no. a dig at the system. No, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And it circles back to your original point of like, why don't people know about them? And I think the answer is racism and homophobia. Yeah. So should we take a break and then come back and talk about Mulholland Drive? Uh, is it, uh, I feel like there's a... No, yeah, I think so. Okay, great. <laughs> we'll be back in a second. Okay, and we're back. Oh, yeah. Okay, that was fast. Yeah. For us, I don't know how long it was for you guys. Okay, Mulholland Drive. Okay, Imaginary Four? Yes. Okay, one, two, three. I have been thinking about this for so many days, and I think I like it. Okay. <laughs> so say, say more about that. So, okay. <laughs> I, where to even start? Where indeed? Where to start? Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Oh, oh, elaborate on that. No, I won't. <laughs> so my my struggle with David Lynch, and it was really apparent in this, but it was also a little bit apparent in Twin Peaks, is he is either so obtuse or so weirdly on the nose. Yeah. And it's nothing in between. Yeah. And I still, after watching this movie, is he good at directing yeah i was gonna say directing actors but i think i should just leave it at directing because i'm like is it good or is is it it just boys telling each other they're good at stuff just doing whatever they want and being like i experimented i'm do i'm brave like i i don't follow the rule i'm a cowboy yeah yeah and i feel like he's got that impulse but i think the thing is okay So I think why I'm willing to like really sit with this a lot is it was originally supposed to be a television pilot. He wrote it as a television pilot. 
He sold it. He shot the whole thing. And then when he brought it to the studio, they went, oh, absolutely not. Oh, no, no. No, 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 no. (laughs) And so he then wrote an ending. He's never said where the pilot ends and where the movie begins, like where the ending that he wrote begins. But I think it's after they get sucked into the box. It can't be. I knew that's what you were going to say, but that's that's like a 90 minute pilot. The pilot for Twin Peaks is 90 minutes. Okay, okay. Because, like, after that is when it gets weird. Yes, the movie gets markedly more weird, like, three quarters of the way in. It's, like, already, it's, like, weird. Yeah. And then it just, like, suddenly gets aggressively weirder. The the first three quarters feels a lot like Twin Peaks. Like, there's different threads going. Nothing's really quite lining up. Yeah. They're all sort of pulling towards each other in a way that's, like, it feels like we're working towards something, but Mm -hmm. also intellectually you can tell that it's not. Yeah. Like I'm picturing like little kaleidoscope pieces where like you turn it and it's like you think maybe the next time it'll become a perfect checkerboard, but like, no, it's always just going to turn into another mess. Yeah. And like he'll give you enough. Like what I remember from the Twin Peaks I saw is like he's giving you answers as you go. He's not just adding to the mystery, but it's like for every answer he gives you, that answer raises another question. Right. But it's important to distinguish it though from something like Lost, where it's like too many questions and like we answer some things, but then there's always more questions, but the answers make sense when Mm -hmm. we get them. Yeah. This is like, there's a couple of realities going at once. Like there's a business about like a movie director has been slipped a headshot of a girl that he's supposed to cast in his upcoming film. And we know her name. They say it a bunch of times. And then later in the movie, like someone else that we have known, like a character that we have known is that girl now, but it's not the girl from the headshot. Yeah. So it's not like Lost where it's like, oh, we found some of the answers. Like it's it's never, you would never mistake it for something that's going to turn into like Euclidean storytelling. Even sure. from the beginning, I don't think. Yeah, there were a lot of things that didn't really go anywhere. And I think that was the TV pilot of it all. Like all of the things that he set up, like the weird corporation behind the scenes. Yeah, the cowboy going, if you do good, you'll see me one more time. And if you do bad, you will see me two more times. Mm-hmm. And then we see him zero more times. And we see him one more time. Oh, we do? Yeah, we see him one more time. Although Justin Theroux sees him zero more times. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I meant in that storyline, I guess. Sure, yeah. As weird and complicated as the movie is, the conceit of the movie is actually pretty straightforward. Sure. There is a woman who is in a car accident on Mulholland Drive. Yes. She wanders into the home of Naomi Watts who is fresh off the boat from Toronto. Oh, and she has lost her memory, the, the, the lady in the car crash. Yes, the lady in the car crash who is, goes by Rita has lost her memory. And at the same time, Justin Theroux is casting his movie. He's a big shot, muckety-muck movie director. And he has been told, as you just said, to cast someone very specific by a mysterious organization of individuals who yes. clearly has a lot of influence. We don't know who they are. And then those also, stories- Also, he brings a single golf club to the meeting and that was funny to me. Yeah, and those stories sort of weave in and out of one another. Yeah, you can tell that they're driving towards each other, but not in a way... Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's like, yes, they want to talk to each other, but it it never feels like, ah, yes, these things would resolve each... Like, you know how in a thriller... 
you can see that it's a big knot. Yes. And and if it's a good thriller, the knot is too hard for you to undo by yourself. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of see the knot starting to untangle. Yeah. And then eventually you can see your way through. This is like, it's not like that. You always know that it's five different knots. Yeah. Or that it's a knot in a bowl of oatmeal. You Do you know what I mean though? Like it's it's not like... If it just didn't get weird in the last quarter, these things would sort themselves out. Like, they wouldn't. Right. Like, really, it's weird the whole way through. And I think what saves David Lynch's projects that I've seen from feeling, dis- like, dismissively pretentious yeah, is everyone is clearly doing something very weird that is very intentional. And it's not like, you know how sometimes when you see pretentious art house movies and everyone is just, like, acting so hard? Yeah. No one's really doing that. It's, like, very over the top. There's a lot of just, like, weird, awkward pauses. There's a lot of just, like, people doing and saying bizarre things that just behaving not like how people behave. There's that random scene where the guy dies of a heart attack because he sees a... A monster behind a Winkies? Yeah, and then it has not... That guy doesn't come back? That guy has the little blue box at the end and he puts it in a paper bag with some trash. Yeah. I feel like that was part of the, No, the monster does. The monster does, yeah. Yeah, okay, no, but the guy who... Like, we never know who the other guys are. Yeah, when they do the body switch, she sees him in the Winkies... When she's talking to the hitman, oh yeah, all yeah, the yeah. way at the end of the movie. Yeah, and then and she has switched names with the waitress. Yeah. Also, yeah. this is this is the other thing with David Lynch is like, I don't know if he knows how to properly name things to make them mean what he wants. Like, okay, I was thinking about this today, and tell me what you mean by that. Okay, so in Twin Peaks. And this is a little bit of a spoiler for Twin Peaks, I apologize. But it came out 30 years ago. Watch it or don't. The demon in that show is named Bob. And I think that that is a very stupid name for a demon. Sure. (laughs) Similarly, in this movie, the monster is behind a Winkies. Yes. And so it's really hard to take that whole scene seriously because my brain just kept going, I'm sorry, you're outside a Winkies? Yeah. Which is basically like a Denny's. And also the monster, it's like, is this a monster movie? Like the monster has no real power over the other storylines until it, until things get real, until the blue box, until things get real nonsensey. So I'm going to tell you about my experience now. As soon as the movie started, I was like, uh-oh, this is stupid boy stuff. I remembered it fondly because like your quest for a, a boob, I just was on a quest for two girls kissing and this movie gave me that at a time when I needed it. And so I was like, okay. And then when we put it on the other night, I was like, oh no, it's stupid boy. It's just stupid boy stuff. It's just stupid boy stuff. I'm about to hate it. And I do, it is a lot more stupid boy stuff than I remember or than I had the tools to name at the time. But it is, I do think it's a really useful like hash mark on the continuum of cause and effect storytelling to nonsense because it's neither. Yeah. And I think it can be really hard to write something that makes perfect sense and feels satisfying and... It can also be it can also be easy to just write things that cause each other. <laughs> and then it can also be hard or easy to write nonsense that feels good. But this is neither of those things. It's not just salad. It's not just gobbledygook. Yeah. We've all seen those art house films that are just like 
too much just like I just cut stuff together. Yeah. Or we've all had a friend in our theater school program or art school or whatever who was like, you know what would be good art? If we just like didn't put any, if we just did nonsense, if we just didn't put any thought into it at all, we didn't make any of the things like resonate with each other, like just like perfect Dadaism. Yeah. This isn't that either. And it's, I'm not interested in having my chain yanked, but I am interested in magical realism and other modes of logic besides real love, you know, like dream logic. Yeah. And I think this movie is a really useful, it's just a useful thing to point to, to be like, there's ways that it makes sense and ways that it doesn't make, like there are things like, like how the blue key changes, but it's still a blue key and we know what that means and we know that it belongs, but we don't know exactly what it means, but we know that it belongs in this story and it Mm -hmm. cues feelings within us. There's a way that it's, that it's almost like a, a fable like quality to it. Yeah. That I find it's like, I don't know if I need this movie, but that kind of weirdness I don't want to write off, and it's a good common vocabulary to have with people to be able to be like, is it like Mulholland Drive? I agree, and I think that it feels... Is it wrong to say it feels Brechtian? It just feels like he wants you to be very aware of the fact that you are sitting down and watching a movie. No, it's not wrong to say that it's Brechtian. Just that, like, very intensely self-aware, like, you're watching something very, like, presentational as opposed to representational, and that's just not something we get a lot in film, especially American film. Yes, aware of its own medium as it's happening. Yeah. And, like, sort of using that as part of the vocabulary that we're all in. When I was an undergrad, this kid did, for his final directing project... He did it. He picked a script that I was like, I don't like this because it's one of those things that's like, doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just like a bunch of words. Like, why is this what you want to do? Like, it's just a bunch of words. And then he made the audience cafe tables. Mm -hmm. And then the show was like so good. (laughs) I honestly, even now, because that guy turned out to be really shitty, I like hate to admit that because you know it's hard when douchebags are talented yeah but i was just so jealous of it because i was like oh i could i couldn't have made that i did my thesis show was very good both my shows were great but i couldn't have done what he did Mm -hmm. and i think if i were trying to describe it to someone else which i am right now (laughs) i would want to be able to say have you seen mulholland drive because it had the same kind of like we establish an image vocabulary together as performers and audience. Yeah. And we mix and match some of these things in ways that evoke emotions, but are not, then this happens because of this, and we know where this is going, and we know what the consequences are going to be. It's not, that's not what it's like. It's like, I wanted to say, like, it's like more raw or like more feelings, but it's still kind of brainy. It's just a different kind of brainy. Yeah, it's like, don't worry so much about what the mystery is. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of mystery shows, the mystery not is why is this happening? Whereas in this, the mystery not is what is happening, which is very different. Yes. And like, you understand each sequence in isolation. Yes. But then tying it all together into a story is hard. 
Yeah. You have this sense that there are emotional stakes between the characters, but they don't always develop in a completely sensical way. Or sometimes we are just told that they've radically changed and we just have to accept that. It's like, oh, these people who we saw meet two days ago have now been lovers for months. That's fine. And and their behavior is going to reflect that. And also their names are different. <laughs> like, yes. It asks you to just kind of say okay to stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. But it also makes you want to somehow. Yes. It really wins you over in a weird way. Yeah. I think because of how stylized it is. Yeah. You're like, okay, he's doing something. I know he's doing something. And if I just pay attention to this enough, but that's I what I'm could saying, maybe like, crack enough of it. Is it good or is it just our faith in men getting to do stories? Like, no, I don't know. I mean, if someone had presented me Mulholland Drive and it was the exact same thing, but it was directed by, I don't know, Sophia Coppola. I'm just picking someone who I feel like has it in them to do something Yeah, like no, this. That's, that's a good pick. I would be like... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I'll, I'll pay attention. I'll no, pay attention. You're right, you're right, you're right. You're right. I wanted to ask, because you had brought it up in the before time, so I wanted to follow up on it. How did you feel about the gay storyline? Did you oh, feel... Oh, yeah. I said, as we were putting the movie on, I was like, I expect I'm going to feel used. Like, I, I thought now now that I'm less starved for representation, I, I, I thought it was going to feel like a stunt Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, look at me and my edgy filmmaking, like two ladies making out. And I think it very well could have. And the only reason it doesn't is that Naomi Watts is a good actor. Yeah. I don't think David Lynch made it not that. I think Naomi Watts made it not that. Because I, th- I, she like really sold me on her like lesbian lust. Yeah. It really does like when it starts, like once it gets going, yes, Naomi Watts is like really selling it well. But it does kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. And I found myself comparing it to Bound. Sure. For the listeners, Bound, if you've never seen it, I think we talked about it on our Matrix bonus episode. Bound is a fantastic movie that involves lesbian lust. Yeah. In a way that feels a lot more both earned and integral to the story. Yes. And though it was made many years before, I saw them probably the same year of my life when I was Mm -hmm. just like on a mission for two girls kissing. So you feel like Naomi Watts really, really brought that home. I do, honestly. Do you think it's because of the crasturbation scene? No, that made me uncomfortable then and now. Okay, so even even compared to like say Jennifer's body, I feel like you you the reason that queer people complain about well one reason <laughs> that queer people complain about straight people acting us all the time is that they just like don't always do a very good job. Mm-hmm. And I know they'll say actors will say like you have to make out with like co-stars that you don't like all the time. Like what is any different about it? And and it's like bro, I don't know what's different about it, but you're not selling it to me. <laughs> like right. I don't know what's different. You tell me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I've watched a lot of two girls kissing scenes (laughs) acted by straight women. And a lot of times it's like, I just don't believe them. And I didn't really believe the other one, but you sort of don't have to because she's this like memory wiped, like she's her, the whole point of her is that she's like barely a person. Yeah. Yeah. And Naomi Watts just really, really made me feel like she, like her whole life had been leading up to making out with this woman. Yeah. And, and the, and the way that the, the way that the movie is weird and like, like motivation shift and you just like take things <laughs> you just like accept that things are this way now it's like yeah it's a little in another thing it would feel like melodrama but like 
that's where we are. We we've been mel- melodramed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that's the way the melodrama crumbles today, she made it feel real for me. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was, did you come away from this being like, ah, I get thematically what that movie was about, or do you feel like, ah, I could tell you the story of that movie? No, neither. And I remember at the time I did a little like ask Jeevesing. <laughs> Yeah. To try to figure out if there was an internet consensus over what this movie meant. Little, like, whatever, 13, 14-year-old me was like, just explain it to me, please. And I remember the explanations. Like, I remember feeling like the explanations that others were offering me were dubious, even. Like, even, like, looking up the cheat codes, I was still like, no, I don't think... So I honestly didn't go in with that goal at all. I was like, it's not one knot that I need to untangle. Yeah. It's a 4D oatmeal knot. Yeah. So I just went in ready for an experience. And that's what I'm trying to say about the kid with the play with the cafe tables. It's like, that's okay. Like, it can be that and it can be good at that. And it can be the things that we want to find patterns in and find meaning in and see if there is a story. I just did bunny ears that we can like break it down into and say like, this is what happened. When things go wonky, it's because we have entered this character's mind. This character has split personality and this part is their perception and this part is this other character's perception. And if we untangle it this way, we don't need to do that. You don't need to do that Mm -hmm. to have a good film experience. Yeah. You can just let it make you feel the way it makes you feel and have your little totems called back to mind and be like, ah, yes, blue keys mm-hmm. and know that you're, that you're in the same story web somehow. And just like, you can just, you can just be there. Right. And like, if you come away from it feeling like the monster behind the Winkies is a metaphor for LA's entertainment industry writ large and that Naomi Watts's name doesn't really matter because she is every woman who's ever been chewed up and spit out by the studio system. Sure. Great. That's one way of thinking about it. Yeah. Those are both great theories. I have a vague memory from that Yahooing about the, the old people that she gets off the Greyhound. Yes. With, and then they come out of the paper bag. Yes. They also play some role in like the monster that is Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely something about like LA is a monster that chews up nice blonde girls. Yeah. And like stolen innocence. And mm-hmm. I mean, it is a very, it is, it's a, it's an LA story. Mm-hmm. If there are threads you can pull from the knot, go for it. I feel like it's never going to come all the way into focus. And so I would rather just look at the knot. Yeah. That's just my approach. I'm sure you could track, like, I'm sure there are sound cues. You could, that, like, sucking sound that happens when they fall into the box. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you could assign meaning to that. I'm sure you could assign meaning to the blue keys. Yeah. Or, you know, more meaning. And I'm sure you could track them better. Or, like, the fact that the landlady is the... The mom. Yeah, in the other story. Like, you could assign meanings to things yeah if you have any more no those are my those are my two big ones yeah i I think you're right i and i do think that i think that david lynch has like some of that in his mind and he either has so much that it there is a way that it all like lays flat and just none of us are smart enough Mm -hmm. to do it or he is just a little loose with it too it's like it's kind of this but it's also like right now it's this but it also could be You know what I mean? Like, what's the deal with the guy in the curtains? Oh, yeah. Like, the whole, whole, like, organization of, like, evil Hollywood and, like, Mm -hmm. what is the cowboy and, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's a lot that's, like, oh, that's just to be weird. Right. I think. Right. Unless it's not. 
Right, unless it's not. Yeah, he has said, and this is very like his thing on Eraserhead, he has said that Mulholland Drive tells a coherent story, but he has refused to tell anyone what it is. Yeah, so one time I read The Sound and the Fury, and I took it off off my dad's shelf, which I think I think we've discussed my dad's bookshelves on this podcast before. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he asked me how it was going, and I was like, you know, if you're going to write it this way, then I'm just going to get what I get, and you're not going to get upset. And he was like, I think that is a fair approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I feel about it. It's like, I'm a, I'm a smart girl. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You told me what you told me. I will take what I take. If you wanted it to make perfect sense to me, you could have made a film that made perfect sense. Right. If you wanted me to know the exact story, you could have told me the exact story. Mm-hmm. This is what you wanted to make. I watched it. I got what I got. And like, I think there's a lot of things to get from a piece of storytelling besides plot. And so that's like fine with me. Yeah. So who do you think this movie is for? Ugh, like, I don't know. I guess film nerds, but I don't know. Like, you'd have to ask the film nerds, do they want this? Yeah. Film nerds, do you claim this? Probably. The problem is that, like, much like with Tom Waits, the question of who is it for is like, who the fuck is it for? I think it's for David Lynch. And whoever else is interested. Like, I don't really think he cares too much about who is listening or who is watching. Yeah. And at the same time, the only person in my head who I have a clear image other than David Lynch, who I think it is for, is a person I don't want to talk to. Like, if someone came up to me at a party and was like, oh my God, I love the movie Mulholland Drive, and they were any sort of man. Yeah. uh, That is a... The opposite of LaBelle. It is a giant red yeah, flag. Yeah, I would say it's a red flag. Even though we just, we do have a lot of positive things to say about the film, I would say if somebody tries to talk to you about this film, that is a red flag. Yeah, unless, again, like we said with Tom Waits, unless they start with, listen, I know it's weird. Yeah. Like, it's really strange. I know David Lynch is really strange. But I can't even tell it's you why. It's just like the kind of thing that tickles, gives me a brain massage. Yeah. If someone comes at me like that, then I'm like, okay, interesting. Interesting. Say more. Like I would engage in a conversation with someone who is coming at it like that. Yeah. Oh, can we talk about, this is going a little bit backwards, but can we just take two minutes to talk about the, there's like a scene where Naomi Watts has an audition that is just like, it's shot very weird. And it's just like from a now times... It's just like a very creepy audition situation yeah. where like this old guy uses the like the script that they have. It doesn't make a ton of sense for him to be like feeling her up. But he's like, that's I think what the scene calls for. And that's like part of her audition. Yeah. And it's just interesting to reflect on pieces of media that are saying that like so long before. Because it's like now that we're having these whole conversations about this and people are being like. Yeah, everybody knew. It's like, yeah, everybody knew it was in the movie. Like, people made movies. Yeah. (laughs) Like, nobody saw this and was like, that's not how auditions are. And there's not even a, like, what I'm saying about it, it's shot weird. There's not even a couch. It's not even a casting couch. They're in a crowded, over-furnitured, like, a stuffed office with, like, too many people and nowhere to sit. And Mm -hmm. they're, like, crammed in a corner. They're not even, like, opposite there's not even a camera pointed at them and there's like people looking at them and like there's not even like a like a delineation of audience and audition. Yeah, it's like they're doing a play in a closet. Yeah, there it's just, it's like a room full of people and two of these people are reading a script together where one of them is 
molesting the other one a little bit. Yeah, and Naomi Watts's character, to her credit, decides to lean into it and just like whispers her lines into his mouth. Yeah. And like does a really good job. Yeah, and then everyone's like, oh my God, she's a star. It's just interesting to me when stuff like that comes up from the way past that's like showbiz insider stuff that's like, oh yeah, what, we weren't even pretending that it wasn't this way. Yeah. Sorry to do that derailed the- No, 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 no. Um, the who is this for? Do we care about it? Who is it for? Do we care about it? I don't know. I mean, I, okay. It's one of those things where on the whiteboard, there is a category. There is, is it on the syllabus? Yes, optional reading, no. And then there's a side category that's just Tom Waits that I fully intended to just only be for Tom Waits. Yeah, as like a joke about Tom Waits, but it, no, that is where this goes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I can't see myself putting this on any curriculum. Like, it is funny to be like, Tom Waits is his own category, but like, we did put him solidly in mythologizing America and he belongs there. Yeah. Like, I don't know what this film teaches. <laughs> but I did just say that it's such a good LA story. It feels like if you, if you read it as some sort of like allegory for LA and fame and the entertainment industry that everyone loves so much then I think you could put it in Mythologizing Americana. But if you're not going to do that, then I think you're right. I don't okay. know where it goes. No, I, th I have a different use for it, actually. I think the curriculum that I would use it in, because this is what I'm trying to say, is like I think it's a really important like lily pad between sense and nonsense that is like, like if I were teaching different kinds of storytelling, different ways for a story to have like structure and to make you feel something. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting data point in that that is not that is not the same as like you know a regular story and also not the same as just like waiting for Godot which I know you didn't bring up but I thought you did in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's also not the same as just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. Or nothing happening or like variations on a theme or like circular like vagina monologues fucking my least favorite kind of storytelling sure sorry i hate the vagina monologues you guys should know that about me like it's not the same as any of those things but it is something mm -hmm. so i think if, if i had a bunch of high school students who were like i'm frustrated by the limitations of my medium i might be like you know what mohan drive Mm -hmm. It's not as limited as you think. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point of like, it, it is exploring the bounds of coherence while still committing to like surrealism. Yeah. I'm excited to be able to compare other things to it to you in the yeah. future. It is useful information to have. And I mean, I've definitely encountered stuff like that in school where it's like, this is not the lesson that I'm having you take away. This is instructive of the lesson that's coming up later. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think in that way, you're right. It could be useful. I mean, if you're into experimental shit, go for it. If you're into art house movies, go for it. Yeah. But am I going to tell anyone that they need to see this movie? No. Unless they told no. me those two things? And anyone and anyone who tells you, like, if that person who's like, I love Mulholland Drive tries to tell you that you are a silly person for not knowing it or not liking it, run for the hills. Yes. That person is not worth your time. That's right. In keeping with a promise that we have been making, I want to read a review that we got recently. Okay, yes, please. Listeners, I do not know this. I don't think I do. Did you read me this before? I think I have. This came in a couple weeks ago from W.D. Gatlin. We know who you are. Thank oh, you. Okay, okay. And it is titled, They Are a Sophisticate and Now I Am Too. 
And it says, came for the sophistication, stayed for the banter, nuanced takes, and hilarity of the hosts. Actually succeeds in making me curious about music and film I was unfamiliar with. Also, they're just interesting people. And now I feel more interesting listening to this podcast. Hey, hey! What a compliment! Yeah, we are interesting. I and will you take are, it. And you can be too. If we are making you more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we really appreciate that. And if you continue to leave us reviews, everyone, we will continue to read them on air. And eventually read Twilight. Yes, and eventually read Twilight. Watch Twilight. Watch Cats. Listen to Cats. All of those yeah. things that are we, we saying what you. we're doing next, or do we? Are, are we just letting it be a surprise for everyone? We'll let it be a surprise. Okay, great. So that about does it here for us at I'm a Sophisticate, and so can you. Until next time, good night and good luck. Brr.